Church, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 5 to 13. Today we will continue our study of the Gospel of Luke in a sermon series entitled Blessed Assurance, and this morning I want to speak to you about persnickety persistence. Luke, chapter 11, verses 5 to 13. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of the reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door's already locked. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is one of those quaint, little, dandy, well-spun stories of Jesus. It's a story that simultaneously puts a smile on our face and packs a punch. Jesus takes a slice of everyday life and he communicates an eternal truth. Jesus said, suppose one of you has a friend and that friend goes to his neighbor at midnight And the friend says to his neighbor at midnight, please give me three loaves of bread. Because a friend of mine has come unannounced. He's journeyed a mighty long way and he is hungry. And I don't have anything to put before him. Now that scenario may sound a bit far-fetched to you and to me. But in the days of the first century, this was a story that could easily be fathomed. Now, keep in mind that in, acti- in antiquity, there were very few hotels where a person could go and receive an evening's rest in a particular place of lodging. There were absolutely no fast food restaurants that had drive through windows. There were no 24-hour gas stations that would sell Kenny Rogers chicken. I mean, this guy is pretty much out of luck. According to uh, Near Eastern hospitality, it was expected that if someone came to your doorstep, you had to give them something to eat or something to drink, or if they needed a place to stay, lodging in your humble abode, especially if that person was regarded as a friend. To send someone away empty-handed and with an empty stomach was unthinkable. It was shameful. And so as Jesus tells this story, he automatically captures the attention of the audience. They begin to lean back and 
cock their head, nod up and down, north and south, and they think to themselves, yeah, I remember one time when that same thing happened to me. And automatically, Jesus has everybody eating out of the palm of his hands. Everybody can identify with the story. The predicament is pretty obvious. It's late at night. The man who came on the doorstep of the host home is in dire straits. He, he needs some food to eat. But the family of the host doesn't have any bread to give. Now maybe this host home had fed all the bread to the family that night. Maybe they ate the last morsel of bread at dinner. Maybe this man had already made plans to go to market the next morning and get all the bread needed for him and for his family for a brand new day. If this man had come earlier in the day, then maybe he would have had some extra to give. But now it's so late. All the bread is gone. There's nothing that's open. And this man is hungry. And the host individual knows that he cannot send this man away empty-handed. The only other viable option would be for him to go and ask his neighbor for some bread. He runs a risk. The risk is he may highly offend his neighbor because of the lateness of the hour. Yet he's willing to take that chance. So he goes next door, taps on the door of his neighbor, quietly and quickly presents his request. And from the inside of the house, the owner of that house says to his neighbor, go away. Why are you bothering me? It's late. My children are in bed with me. The door's already locked. It's important for us to understand that in the first century, most homes were one-room houses. That one room served as the family room, as the dining room, and the bedroom, depending on the time of day. Throughout the day, it was the hub for the family, so it served as, as the family gathering area. At mealtime, it was uh, transferred and transfigured uh, into a dining room. But at night, that one-room house became the, the bedroom. Most houses had one door. That door was usually left wide open throughout the day. But in the evening time, the head of the house would usually come and shut the door. And then he would lock it. And the way you would lock a door in the first century is that uh, he probably would have had a, a large wooden beam that he would have shoved through the iron rings located on the back side of the door and on the adjacent wall. And so by shoving that wooden beam through the iron rings, it made sure that all the intruders would stay out and the door was sufficiently locked. When this man uh, says that... Uh, the door's already locked. What he's saying is, I've already shoved the big wooden beam through the iron rings. When he says, my children are in bed with me, what that means is that every evening, uh, the family would get out the mats, and all the family would, would put the pillows down and the blankets down, and they would all sleep in that one-room house. They would sleep there on the mats. You had mom, you had dad, and you had all the children. They're all tucked in. When he says they're in bed, what he's saying is they're already asleep, and any parent knows that once you get children asleep, victory! It's wonderful once those children go to sleep because the last thing you want is for those children to wake up again. And then you got to go through the whole process of bedding them down a second time. 
So when he says, the door is locked, literally, it's already locked. My children are in bed with me. He says that they're already asleep, and it is late. It is after midnight. What the neighbor is saying is, the last thing I want to do is wake up and get up and stumble and stagger in the darkness of night to the far corner of the room, rummage around in the bread pantry, get you three loaves of bread, which, by the way, a a loaf of bread uh, was nothing really more than the size of a dinner roll. It was a meager dinner. For him to say, I need three pieces of bread, I need three rolls to give to this uh, traveling friend of mine that's come. He says, listen, if I go over there and I rummage around and I get three uh, pieces of bread and then I tiptoe back over as to not step on my children and my wife, and then somehow if I successfully navigate that and get to the door, once I shove that wooden beam back through the iron rings, it will inevitably wake up my children. And then you want me to give you three pieces of bread? And then guess what happens? I've got to shut the door and shove that wooden beam back through the iron uh, rings. And then I've got to put my children back to bed. In other words, no chance. The trouble is not the task. The trouble's the timing. It's not that the neighbor doesn't have bread. He's got bread to spare. I mean, he, can, he could meet the need. It's not that um, he doesn't have the ability. It's not that he doesn't have the capacity to meet the need. He can meet that need. It's not that big of a deal to ask for three extra pieces of bread. But the timing is terrible. It's after midnight. Everybody's asleep. I don't want to get up and go through all that experience to get you some bread and bring it back. So he says, go away. Stop bothering me. And the man on the outside of the door keeps knocking, and he keeps asking. And the man on the inside of the door keeps saying, go away. And the man on the outside of the door keeps knocking and keeps asking. And the man on the inside of the door keeps saying, go away. Don't make me get up. Go away. Stop bothering me. But the man on the inside of the door knows that the man on the outside of the door is not going to stop knocking. He's not going to stop asking. He's going to keep on knocking and keep on asking. And Jesus says, the man on the inside of the door, the neighbor, he will eventually get up, not because he's this man's friend, but simply because of this man's boldness. That word boldness means persistence. Because of this man's persistence, the man on the inside will eventually get up, give him all that he needs. So he's probably going to get more than three loaves of bread. He's probably going to get everything that he needs. And and the man on the inside is going to give it to the man on the outside just to keep him quiet. And that's the story. For us to accurately interpret the story, we've got to know two things. First, This is a story about prayer. You know it's a story about prayer because it comes on the heels of Jesus giving the Lord's Prayer to his disciples. Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer is found in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, the immediate passage that precedes the one I just read for you. Jesus was by himself. He was praying, and an anonymous disciple came up and said, Lord, teach us to pray. That request is astounding. He does not ask, Lord, teach us how to feed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. 
He doesn't say, Lord, will you teach us how to raise the dead? Or Lord, will you teach us how to preach like you? Or Lord, will you teach us how to calm the seas? Or Lord, will you teach us how to drive out demons like you did for Legion? They don't ask any of that. This anonymous disciple comes up and says, Lord, teach us to pray. So Jesus gives the model prayer. This model prayer is not so much what to pray, but it's how to pray. There's nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer, but the prayer was given not to teach us what to say, but to teach us how to pray. So when you pray, you have relational reverence. You go to God, you say, Our Father out in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are the Holy Father. And when you go with relational reverence, it's out of that you have a desperate dependency. So you ask for daily bread. So you ask for forgiveness. So you ask for guidance away from temptation. And this is how you pray. So this story that Jesus gives for us is a story about prayer. In the little uh, wonderful quaint story that Jesus gives, he does applaud the man on the outside of the house, for his persistence, for his boldness. So it seems that Jesus is applauding persistence in prayer, boldness in your request. It's a story about prayer. But the second thing we need to note is that this is a story of contrast. A lot of times Jesus would tell a story, and it's really a story of comparison. The most famous story Jesus ever told was the story of the prodigal son. We'll get to it in Luke chapter 15. In that story, uh, he compares God to the earthly daddy. It's a story of comparison. He says that just as the earthly father was loving and benevolent and forgiving, so your heavenly father is loving and benevolent and forgiving. Just as the earthly dad uh, ran to the wasteful son, so God runs to you and runs to me, and he searches after us. And this is how God is portrayed, as a father who's in a hurry, as a loving daddy. And this is how God is portrayed in Jesus' story of the prodigal son. It's a story of comparison. You want to see what God is like? Read the prodigal son story of Luke 15. That describes and compares the attributes of the heavenly father to the earthly daddy. We don't have a story of comparison in Luke chapter 11. We have a story of contrast. Jesus is not comparing God to a cranky neighbor that somehow you have to wear down with your prayers. That if you wear him down enough, eventually he'll give in. This is not a story of comparison. This is a story of contrast. If you approach this story as a comparison story, you'll walk away with the image of God being nothing more than a cranky neighbor that somehow you've got to manipulate, that somehow you've got to uh, just wear down with your constant, constant asking. But this is not a story of comparison. It's a story of contrast. God is the direct opposite of a cranky neighbor. God is is a loving neighbor. God is a benevolent neighbor. In fact, God, he is a loving daddy. This is why Jesus says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. For he who asks receives, he who seeks finds. To him who knocks, the door is open. Those three imperatives of ask, seek, and knock Those three imperatives are present tense. 
So Jesus does applaud the fact that we keep on praying. We keep on asking, we keep on seeking, and we keep on knocking. But Jesus says, I don't want you to miss this. You don't keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking as if you're going to wear down God who's a cranky neighbor. No, he is a loving daddy. Then he continues with the contrast when he says, what dads in the crowd? What moms in the crowd? What parents in the crowd? If your son asked for a piece of fish, which one of you would try to pull the wool over his eyes and give him a snake instead? And say, son, jump on that. Who of you, if your son asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? And say, son, here you go. Have at it and have fun. Which of you would intentionally try to harm your children or defile them by having them eat something that was unclean? Jesus says, who of you would do that? And nobody raises their hands. And Jesus says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts, so does your heavenly Father. He knows how to give even greater gifts. He gives the Holy Spirit to anyone who will ask. Once again, it's a story of contrast. What he applauds is the persistence of the prayer. Don't give up. Keep knocking. Keep asking. Keep seeking. You keep on praying. But it's not for the purpose of wearing God down as if somehow he's a cranky ogre, uh, somebody who's, who's a mean neighbor. No, your God in heaven is a loving daddy. And if you, though you are sinful to the core, though you are evil, and he speaks of the total depravity of humanity, though you are evil, if you know how to give good gifts, how much more your Father in heaven? It's a story of contrast. The one to whom you pray is a much more. He is so much more than you can ever ask, think, or imagine. He wants to give you so much more than you can ever fathom. You get a glimpse of this when you see a mom or dad demonstrate love to their children. But at the core, we're sinful. We're not innately good. We are born with a sinful nature. We are innately selfish. And at the core of all sinfulness is selfishness. And at the core of who we are, we are selfish and we are sinful. We are arrogant. And if we, as depraved as we are, know how some way by the grace of God to give good gifts to our children, how much more, your Heavenly Father, because your Heavenly Father not only meets your physical needs, but also your spiritual needs. He knows how to give you bread to eat. He knows how to give you forgiveness from sin. He knows how to guide you away from temptation. He also knows how to give the Holy Spirit to anyone who will ask. Our Father can give eternal life. Our Father can give life without end. Our Father can give life without decay. Our Father can give purpose and meaning in this life and the life to come. Our Father can seal us for salvation both now and forevermore in the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. God, our Father, gives the Holy Spirit to anyone who will ask. So you walk away from this story, and what does Jesus tell us? He says, first, be persistent in your prayers. Don't give up. 
Ask, seek, knock. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Friend, there may be somebody here and you've been praying a long time for the salvation of your spouse and it's not happening. You've been praying for him or her for the better part of 20 years. From your vantage point, they don't look any closer to God today than they did 20 years ago. And you're tempted to give up on him. You're tempted to give up on prayer. You walk away from this story, and Jesus says, don't you give up. You keep asking. You keep seeking. You keep knocking. There's somebody who's struggling with a disobedient child. Your daughter's wayward. She was taught the truth, but she's far from it now. Your son was raised in church, but he's as rebellious as the day is long. And there are times you get so frustrated with your children. Yeah, you love them, you've done everything you can for them, but there are times you want to give up on them. You want to give up on prayer. You've been praying for that wasteful son or daughter, that prodigal, to come home, and they haven't. You think to yourself, what good do my prayers do? Hasn't positively affected them for the last five years. Why should I keep it up? You walk away from this story, and this story tells you, you keep on asking, you keep on seeking, you keep on knocking. Somebody has a problem at work, and it's a big problem. It's not getting smaller. It's not getting any better. In fact, it seems to be getting worse. Oh, you've been praying about it. You've been praying about it for several months, maybe even a couple of years. And you've been waiting and wondering, when is God going to show up? And when is God going to fix it? But it's not being fixed. And you're still struggling. And the weight of that worry is still oppressive upon your shoulders. And you wonder, when is this problem going to ever be corrected? You're tempted to give up. To give up on the job, to give up on prayer. But you walk away from this story, and Jesus says, you keep on asking, you keep on seeking, you keep on knocking. I think what Jesus is saying is that some of us just might be one prayer away from a breakthrough. So keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. You demonstrate great faith when you continue to pray to a great God. I think Jesus also wants us to note to whom we pray. Don't ever forget, you are not praying to a cranky neighbor. You're praying to a heavenly Father who loves you more than you can ever imagine. You're praying to a God who knows the future as certainly as he knows the past. You're praying to a God who has the solution and the answer well on its way. So this morning I ask you, what did you come into this house tapping on this door in need of today? All of us came to the house in need of something. What did you come into this house tapping on this door in need of today? Do you need some bread? God, your heavenly Father, can give you more bread. 
Do you need forgiveness? God, your heavenly Father, can give you more forgiveness. Do you need some holiness? God, your heavenly Father, can give you more holiness. Do you need some help? God, your heavenly Father, can give you some help. Do you need some answers? God, your heavenly Father, wants to give you some more answers. He wants you to know that he is a father, a good, good father. And if you ever question the goodness of God, all you have to do is look at the table of our Lord. Because when you and I come to the table, we see the broken body and and spilled blood of Christ. And we see that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we, though we are dead in our sins, may be made alive in Christ Jesus. And who gave us salvation? A good, loving daddy in heaven. So this morning, don't give up on prayer. And this morning, remember to whom you pray. We do not approach a cranky neighbor that we have to wear down. We approach a heavenly father who wants to give us much more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. If you're a baptized believer in Christ, you're invited to come to his table.